the genius of Brian De Palma was that he fooled us into taking our armor off just before the movie was over. We unarmored in our minds. We were already thinking about uh, where's my coat? Make sure that my wife gets her hat. Do you have money to pay the babysitter when we get home? So you're totally open and totally vulnerable to what happens now. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Phantom Galaxy. I'm your host, Nathan Bartlebaugh, and I'm joined with Seth Domback. Seth, how are you today? Doing great, Nathan. And we are here to start a new series that we've been meaning to kind of begin uh, for a while now. And it's, uh, you know, we were, it seems like we're always starting a new series. <laughs> but uh, I think this one's... It was originally intended to be just a couple episodes long, and I think we realized that uh, there's enough material there that I'd, I felt like we were setting ourselves up for, you know, three or four or five-hour episodes. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, what we're planning to do is a series covering the movie adaptations, movie and television adaptations of Stephen King. Uh, Seth and I are both really big Stephen King fans, and... But it seems like every decade or so you'll go through this kind of spot where suddenly everyone starts adapting King again. So Stephen yeah. King will have these like hot years. I remember nine I think it was ninety three, he had like four or five adaptations come yeah. out in that like year alone. And we're we're at another one of those points. I think this year we've had uh you know, we've got The Mist has become a miniseries again. Uh, Mr. Mercedes is on television, we have it coming out, we have the Dark Tower. And uh, I think there's also uh, Gerald's Game is coming to Netflix soon. Yep. So several adaptations and things like that on the horizon. And again, it seems to happen in groups. But I thought it would be interesting to go through and really talk about King. And, and not just the movies, but also the books that inspire the movies. So not just a comparison, this was different and that was different. But really use them as a... Jumping off point to first look at the book to kind of go back and reread and reappreciate what's in the books and then compare that to what has been done adaptation wise. Because I think King has a huge library of stuff. He also has a lot of stuff that's been adapted. He's had some stuff that's been adapted well. He's had stuff that's been adapted not so well. Um, <laughs> but I think there's a lot to be garnered there's a lot that we can discuss and we're going to kind of set up a structure for this as we go along to just very uh, briefly kick this off i just wanted to talk a little bit seth about uh, your feelings on stephen king as an author i think he's, he's he's someone that i think almost everyone knows about and if you're into pop culture and stuff like that you can't not know about him if you're into horror he may in fact be one of the very reasons you're into horror at all if you're yeah. a fan of that kind of thing. So, Seth, what do you think? Uh, give us your basic impressions about Stephen King and his work. So, uh, you know, right off the bat, King is and has been my favorite author since I was 
probably in the third or the fourth grade. Um, being a kid who was into horror to begin with, I eventually was going to come across him sooner or later. And not trying to like toot my own horn or anything, but you know, I was definitely at like a higher reading level when I was in elementary school, and you know, I came across King at a yard sale. Like I'd heard the name before, and I wanted to start reading his stuff. And every weekend, my parents, we'd go on different yard sales, and, and I'd always find places that would have Stephen King books, so I just started collecting them, you know, because I'd find them for like a dollar or something. And then the first one I read was Cujo, and from reading Cujo, like, that just sparked my love for King, like, I had to have every single book of his, so... You know, this series is kind of a way for me to even just revisit a lot of this material that I haven't read probably in 25 years, if not longer. Um, so, like, I just, there's something about King that he captures what I love about horror. I love his writing style. I know he used to get kind of critically shat upon because people were like, oh, this is not real literature. But I do think he's got beautiful prose in the way that he writes. He can be long-winded. I can also, you know, know the faults that he has as well, too. But no matter what, like, he's always, like, I feel like I've, you know, we've stuck together through all the stuff. Like, I, I, I still appreciate his newer novels. I like them in a different way than I did some of his older novels. But you know, through it all, like, King is just, like, that one true staple of horror that, you know, I have to own all his books, you know, I just, I, I love what he writes, I love the, the stories that he tells, and, and really, he is, you know, the, the biggest horror writer of all time, like, I don't, I don't think you can really even argue that fact, I mean, there, you have people like Poe and Lovecraft, which are great in their own right, but, yeah, <laughs> we got Koontz and John Saul. That was a John Saul. John Saul was time. literally the next time. I guess I should throw Peter Straub in there. Maybe Whitley Stryber. Maybe. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, Ramsey like, Campbell, whenever I people guess. are going to... If you're British, Ramsey gonna... Campbell could be there. <laughs> yeah. But people are going to talk about King for, for years and years to come. Like, he's always going to be one of those... He, he will go down to history as, like, one of the best horror writers of all time yeah i think i think so and i think that it is true i think it's acceptable to point out that he might not be quite as skilled or elegant and he might also be one of the first people to tell you this as some of the true of the classics you know uh mr james and poe and authors like that i think king wouldn't necessarily compare himself to them I think he actually has a lot more in common, and this might actually be even more galling to people that I'm about to say this. He's much more of a Charles Dickens type, really, I think, oh, than he totally. is comparable to any horror authors out there. Be mostly because horror authors, most of the self-described uh, horror authors, were very much working within a genre. They knew they were working in that genre, and they were using all the tools available to them to do that you know hey we can expect these sorts of things and we're going to use these flourishes i think king came to the genre a little bit almost i don't say accidentally i think he is interested in the concept and the ideas that push forward horror uh fears yeah. things that paranoia things that prey on our sense of safety and he does that a lot more i believe honestly than he does just write horror 
Like, let's come up with a monster. Let's have a dark and stormy house. Let's do these sorts of things. And as we look at the books, I think we'll find that he's not always big on that. I think one of the defining hallmarks of King for me is that he actually has a I, I think it comes out in his work, and it seems to be part of who he is as a person. I think he has a deep compassion. Uh, it's sometimes undercut a little bit by the way he writes stories in a very matter-of-fact and sometimes gruff, rough way. That is to say, he always speaks through his characters' voices, and his characters sometimes have no interest in being politically correct or anything else like that. And I think that's right. fine, but I think a lot of his horror stems from a certain level of compassion that King is willing to have for his characters that is not always true of people who write horror. It, isn't, it wasn't true of, of Poe. It wasn't true of Ambrose Bierce or many of these other authors who might be considered stronger authors. But it is something I think uh, is a staple of, of who King is and why he is such a good author uh, and for the kinds of stories he tells. I'm a big fan. I, I do think he's got a lot of stuff that, to me, is frustrating. Who It doesn't always measure up, but there's always going to be this place in my mind. It's probably similar to yours where uh, what it was like in the 90s. Again, I was, you know, in the end of elementary school, probably beginning of middle school, when I picked up my first Stephen King book and read it, which for me turned out to be the dark half, <laughs> which... Uh, <laughs> Well, you know, kind of kind of a mixed bag there, but, you know, you start at a certain point and you only have uh, up to go sometimes. Uh, that's not me nagging on the dark half entirely. Yeah. I think there's some interesting things in it. But I read the book and I really liked it. So, I, you know, it was kind of great to find that most everything else was better, um, minus maybe the yeah. Tommyknockers, uh, which might have been the book I read <laughs> second. I don't remember now. Um, but – I think what's intriguing about him is that he is very much connected to human nature in his stories. He's willing to explore human nature and I think explore it in a way that feels realistic and true to kind of who people are. And I, I think we'll be able to explore that as we go on. I think he's a great storyteller. And I also think he is for, he does have bad adaptations, but I do think that he he is someone who does enjoy a wide range and a wide variety of different people willing to take stabs at his material. I mean, when you look at the diverse group of films that have come and movie and TV shows that have come out of his work, I think that's interesting. I don't think many authors, particularly in the horror genre, can say that. You know, that they've yeah. had their work adapted in such a way, Poe maybe, you know, there's been so many adaptations of Poe in different ways. But, there, I mean, you've got Oscar winners and, and Academy Award winners among some of those movies he's made. And then you've got stuff that's not so not so award-winning, uh, unless you count the Razzies. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I'd even also add to that, too, the fact that um, if you have, like, an up-and-coming filmmaker, the fact that he has these things called dollar babies where he sells the rights to his work to some of these people who are just, you know, new filmmakers, college students wanting to do a project, he'll sell the rights to them for a dollar so that they can make, you know, an adaptation of some of his work. I mean, who else is going to do that? I mean, King, he, he really speaks to kind of, like, the blue-collar, like, working-class people of America, which I think is, you know... That, that is a huge portion of America, and it's this is very much American horror in, in what he's writing. And, and like you would mentioned, I, I love the way he writes people. I, I love his his like nostalgia filter that he puts on because I think he captures that so well. 
the, the way he writes for children is great um, with a few exceptions um, when he's trying to do like modern children are not as good, but his, his, you know, just the idea of like how children feel. He, he nails that so well in books like it or the body and stuff like that. Um, but he also, he taps into primal fears. It's not so much like the the graphic descriptions of gore or anything like that. That is what's really scary about his novels. It's like he gets down to the root of what we are truly afraid of. And, and I think that's some of his most compelling and actually frightening stuff. But I, I don't come to a King novel only to feel scared by something. You know what I mean? Like I, I'm looking for I'm looking for a tale of people. I'm looking for, you know... That that's I think where his strongest work is in is in in the telling of the story, not just in the horror elements of that tale. I would totally agree. I think that he's very he's very strong in that area. A lot of people have said that he's like kind of like Stephen King is the plot guy. I don't think he's the plot guy. I mean, his stories do sometimes have very straightforward plots, but I think that even when those stories do have straightforward plots, the thing that is drives them is the characters i think almost always are the characters and that's what i think is one of the things that has allowed so many movie adaptations to work is actors and and directors have a lot to work with from a character perspective yeah definitely so you know i'd say with with that like we are going to discuss you know these adaptations as going forward so you know we talked about where's kind of the good place to start with that and and we both agreed that the best place to kind of start is the start of king's career and that's going to be uh his book of carrie like we had talked about you know if you haven't heard the story of you know the kind of the background of where carrie came from not so much the movie but the actual book itself there there's a really compelling story it's actually one of my favorite true life stories if i ever get down on myself about writing i I kind of remind myself of this story of uh how kind of king came to write and carry nathan i don't know if you want to describe that story but i think that is a it's it's such a great story about how somebody who had tried for so many years who did not have a lot at the time and and just kind of blasted into uh this realm of horror and became like he is his trajectory of his career from the point of getting Carrie published to where he is now, it's like he didn't even have like a lull in between there, really. No, no, he didn't really. He just kind of jumped into it. It's uh, it's interesting. He also too was, I guess, he was approaching thirty, really, at around the time that the book got published. Though he had been writing for about twenty years prior to that, and it should be notable that he was getting stories published. He was sending books out, and he even got rejected from Carrie. I think he had sent it about 17 other places first uh, before it finally got yeah. picked up. Before that, he was working. I mean, he was basically, they were living in a, renting someplace, a small little place where he didn't even have his own office. He was just sitting kind of in the middle of a room somewhere uh, with, his, with his typewriter set up, and he was coming home from working all these different odd jobs that he was doing, one of which was basically... He was like the uh, janitor, I think, at like a school, yeah. a high school. And at one point he's going through the high school and he sees the women's like locker room, the girls' locker room there in the showers. And this scene, you know, I, I, I try not to imagine him just standing there with a mop leering at it for any amount of time. <laughs> but King has – a small aside, King has a really interesting – 
way and habit of describing where his stories come from. And you can almost find these in the forewords of most of his books if you've never read them. A lot of what we're talking yeah. about right now, he's explicitly described in a book called On Writing, which if you have no interest yeah. in reading Stephen King, if you have no interest in horror at all, I would still recommend this book. It's one of the most interesting and probably yeah. more inspiring books about writing because of how plain spoken he is about it and how with with yeah. He isn't trying to set himself up on a pedestal. He talks very openly and honestly about the process and how he's come to things. And I think it's very inspiring, particularly if you – it makes you want to write, even if you've never had an inclination to do so before. And most of what he details yeah. in this particular instance comes from there. And he talks about how he has that image uh, – a lot of his books seem to spring out of an image that he kind of sees in his mind – and there's a lot of different pieces that come together. But he goes home and he starts to kind of write this story. At this point, he was selling stories mostly to men's mag magazines. So yeah. I remember seeing as a kid, published in Cavalier. I'm like, what kind of magazine is Cavalier? <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but, you know, Playboy and stuff like that. Oh, my God. That. No, son. Don't look at it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's like – I remember him describing once that he had to push his way – between like the old the like dirty old man at the like magazine rack to get the latest episode so he could see his story in print and so he was publishing stories yeah. here some of the stories end up in night uh night shift and other places are getting published here so on one hand it isn't as if he hadn't written anything of value and then suddenly Carrie comes out of nowhere in fact i don't think that's really the right. case at all he would some of some very good stories were published prior to Carrie they just weren't published in a where most people were reading them <laughs> And so you have – although in that days, it, those days, it really wasn't that uncommon for writers, even good writers, to, to be published in Playboy and places like that. I mean, I Stephen yeah. King did the movie Duel uh, – excuse me, let me start again. Steven Spielberg did the movie <laughs> Duel, and it came from Richard Matheson's story that his secretary had said, oh, have you seen this story in Playboy? And his first question was, why are you reading Playboy? <laughs> and the second one was, oh, show me the story. So – that that isn't that unusual. It wasn't like <laughs> King was publishing at the bottom of the barrel, at least for writers and authors at that time. Right. Uh, but then he goes home. He tries to write this story, and he's drawing from a couple different places. He's thinking of these two girls he went to school with, who were for different reasons ostracized. One of them, I think, had an issue maybe with seizures or something. I don't remember all the details, but uh, one of them had a very religious sort of. Uh, closed off mother he went to her house and I remember seeing a giant crucifix he thought if that falls off the wall it's killing somebody <laughs> that was sort of his <laughs> thought process and but one of these girls never like she was solely made fun of because she never changed her clothes like she was always wearing the same uh, plain clothes every single day I think maybe even it might not have been the same set but it seemed like it was and so he said she was she was smart yeah. and she was tuned into things and she was a likable disposition but because of that one thing she was completely ostracized and then one day she came to school and she had brand new clothes they were very nice and they were pretty and it's like she had tried to start all over and they made fun of her twice as much as they had uh, because they just didn't want to accept the fact that she had changed you know, that at that point she belonged yeah. in this role. And what's an interesting note is he makes a point that by the time he starts to sit down to write Carrie, which he's visioning this girl kind of having her period and amidst all these other girls who are mocking her, he also is hearing things about, you know, it's the 70s, so of course he's hearing things about telekinesis, you know, the, all these supernatural phenomena are big at that point. And he's putting all these pieces together, and people are talking about how, well, maybe some of the strange 
phenomena that occur are really a result of someone who has telekinesis, but they don't know how to use it. And so they're manifesting things that people are calling ghosts or strange occurrences or spontaneous combustion or whatever. And it also kind of – whatever book he reads is citing some study that it would most be, mostly be prevalent in females. So he takes all these <laughs> disparate pieces. He sits down and he starts to write something that he ends up crumbling up and binning, throwing into the trash can. And he gives a couple different reasons for that. One of them is it's starting to grow. Uh, the idea is gestating from a nice little short story that he can get some money from – to a novella that isn't probably likely to sell because they don't want to have to print it in chunks or segments, and it might be too large for the magazines. Yeah. And it's ballooning to a novel, and uh, you know, his he said something. His instinct is to kill it, kill it while it's in the crib or something, <laughs> and to just to get rid of it before it gets bigger, before it it gestates into something. And he also mentioned that the second part of it was that he he wasn't sure how much he wanted to commit to it because of kind of the painfulness that came with thinking about particularly these two young girls, because uh, a lot of times when we see kids who get picked on, we either like to tell ourselves stories about how, well, they grew up and they became, you know, twice as good as everybody else that they were surrounded by, or things worked out for them and everyone's happily ever after. By the point King sits down to write this, and he's about not quite 30, I believe both of these girls are dead. One of them yeah. dies as a result of a seizure, and the other one, he specifically states that she went on, she married, I think he says something like she married a man as odd as she was, she had kids, and then she killed herself. So both of them are gone yeah. by the time he sits down to write this. And a combination of all these things ends up, he just puts throws it away. And his wife comes, and, and actually I think at this point, you know, his wife is also kind of pursuing a, a, a career as a writer, and she comes, she pulls this thing out of the trash and says, hey, I think you have something here. And, of course, that's kind of the classic thing that starts him on the road to committing to trying to write Carrie. And ultimately, you know, he sells it. And when he sells it, he sells it for like a couple thousand dollars or something. It's not a lot of money initially. Yeah. Like the actual sale. And he's he's like, wow, it's not quite enough to quit my job, but awesome. And then... <laughs> Then it's shortly after that that when it gets picked up for publishing, it's like that's the deal that kind of sets him on his way. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think he actually ended up selling the paperback rights for it for, I believe, it was like $400,000, which this being, I think I think this is either the early 70s, I believe, mid-70s or so. You know, that's that was a ton of money at that point in time. And, you know, I, like Nathan said, I, I highly recommend reading on writing. Uh, half of the book is kind of like a biography of himself, like an autobiography, and then half of it's just more uh, the nitty-gritty about writing. Um, but the way he tells the story, and especially if you can find on writing, uh, on audiobook, where he narrates him, it, it himself, uh, it's just such a good story, the way he tells it. And I, I just, there's so many things I remember from, from that tale, like him hearing from his publisher you know how much money he was going to make off of it and him just you know feeling like all the the strength in his legs gives out and he just kind of slides down the wall and then he walks out you know not knowing what to do with himself with this new information because they're living you know kind of paycheck to paycheck with him working three jobs and and the only thing he can think to do is go out and buy his wife a a hair dryer (laughs) and it's funny because he gets the call from school and it's his, I think it's his wife calling him, and he's concerned because she never calls him at work. So he's, yeah. he's all these scenarios are going through his head, and uh, he goes in, and, and it's this call that sets him all off. So that's that's yeah. kind of the 
impetus that gets him started. It's the impetus between behind why he kind of writes the book. It is his first big book, and of course he does just take off after that, and there's so many other books. And the way this series is going to work is it's not always going to be just one book and then the adaptation. Uh, but in the case of Carrie, it's a great place to start because it is his first book. I think you can see a lot of his themes in it. But there's also the fact that the reason we're only doing Carrie is because Carrie has four movie adaptations. <laughs> and uh, so, and there are going to be times when we're only going to be talking about one adaptation because it does, or one book because it has so many adaptations. And so we're going to start there with Carrie. And what I want to do first is just, I think both Seth and myself have gone back and reread the book just recently. And it was very interesting to kind of go back and read it because like you, Seth, it's been about 20 plus years since I've read the book and the memories of it are sitting in like a nice cool basement in the summer over in a corner with the flashlight was reading the, the book. Not, not because I was hiding, but just because it was a lot cooler in the basement with the lights turned off. Uh, we had a, one of those like yeah, unfinished, exactly. like almost close to our root cellar. So probably the creepiest place I could possibly find to read a book like that. But that's where I, rem- I have fond memories of reading all of those books in that kind of uh, that environment. So with Carrie being the first book, I think it's fair to say, and King himself alludes to this, that it isn't necessarily the best written book out there. It isn't, he, right. he calls it artless. Uh, that might be a little harsh. It's probably true in some ways. The structure of the story, I think I find is very different than he, uh, than he's used in many of his other novels. He's definitely somebody kind of finding their way. I definitely think, this is me personally, and this might be just from knowing the story he tells and on writing, I definitely feel that there is this weird kind of growing pains between what essentially would probably have made a very good novella, and it, that in reality probably isn't that much longer than a novella, to be honest. I ran through no, this one no. pretty quickly. It's a very it's his short it's the shortest yeah. of his books easily. Uh, it, it in fact I think he has he's got a couple books that began as novellas that are are that are ultimately longer than this. And I'd say some of the story yeah. this is probably only slightly longer uh, than some of the longest stories in a book like Different Seasons. But what there is a lot of material that feels a little bit like padding, and we can kind of talk about that. But what I want to do first is take about. 20 yeah. minutes or so to talk about the book and then talk about the movie adaptations. Uh, and of course, I think a lot of that yeah. time is probably going to be given over to the Brian De Palma movie, which is, I think, arguably the most well-known version. And yeah. there's a lot of good it's reasons the, the why. the most iconic and the best. Yeah, yeah. I didn't <laughs> want to give that away, but yeah, pretty much. Uh, you're right. <laughs> and, but we're going to look at the others. We're, we'll look at the others as well. So, Seth, you went back, you, re, you reread Carrie. How did it match up between your first reading and this reading? Well, it's the interesting thing with rereading it, like, like we had just mentioned too. I, th- this was one I, I read very early on and kind of just, I'd say not that I forgot about it, but the movie itself was so iconic I almost kind of got like overwhelmed with the whole Carrie thing because that's one of those ones that everybody brings up when I talk about King. And I just kind of forgot about it for the most part because it's just like, okay, yeah, I've seen this. I get the story. I got it. You know, I'm I'm carried out almost. But um, uh, 
rereading this book, like I did find a lot of things that I did appreciate, appreciate a lot more about it. Like, I don't think like Nathan said, I don't think it's the best written of his work. Um, I definitely don't think it's the scariest of his work. I, I, I don't really find the idea of like telekinesis or anything like that too scary. Really the most frightening stuff in the book is dealing with like the religious craziness of the mother. Um, but what I did really appreciate going back and seeing it now is finding a lot of those hallmarks that have made King so successful and being able to identify, okay, this is something that sets him apart from so many other horror authors because there's so much work out there and so much of it is not that good and there's just something about the way that king like i i can totally understand why this book kind of took off in the way that it did i think it's just because of his writing style um i just want i actually wanted to highlight one specific quick section that i wanted to read out which because i think it kind of speaks to the way that king writes really well um before we do that descriptive nature oh sorry go ahead before we do that very briefly uh, two things. I think it's going to be safe to say that from here on out for these episodes, we're going into full spo- spoiler territory about the books and the movies based off the books. So if you haven't read Carrie, we're we're going into detail about it. It's really the only way to talk about it. Same way for <laughs> the the films. Uh, and also, Seth, just it is this is a very simple story. But do you want to just set up the basic premise uh, before you launch into that? Oh, definitely. Yeah. So if, if you haven't. If for some reason you haven't read Carrie, you haven't seen the movie, or just have no idea what's it about, um, the book is essentially it's about a, a young girl named Carrie White. I believe she's 16 in the book, um, and kind of everything. The impetus for the entire book is that she's in gym class, showering at the, the end of uh, one of their, one of their classes, and she gets her first period. So she's a late bloomer. Um, we find out that she's never been told about menstruation whatsoever and she thinks that she's bleeding to death and and like nathan had said this is this is a girl who you know is looked down upon everybody makes fun of her you know she's just kind of hidden in the shadows for the most part so you know she starts screaming because she thinks she's going to die and the horribleness of of teenagers these girls start laughing at her they start throwing tampons at her and, you know, just making her feel horrible. And, and when this happens, you know, she's screaming and a light bulb explodes in there where we come to find out over time that Carrie White has telekinetic powers. So she's able to move things. She can manipulate objects. Uh, she kind of learns over time how to use that, like almost like it's a muscle that she's flexing. Um, and then, you know, we get into what is you know one of the most iconic images in horror history uh the the black prom that they call it uh, where she gets her retribution which we'll talk about in a little bit here sister to the red wedding yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> and, and distant niece of, of of the blue homecoming yeah <laughs> right right no, no relative to the yellow bar <laughs> but but um <laughs> Sorry for derailing you. <laughs> That's okay. Um, but this this the story really it, it mainly surrounds it, Carrie, her relationship with her overzealous religion religious mother and we jump back and forth with this story and that, that's one of the strange things about how the book is written it it's told from multiple different perspectives of different people you know her teachers uh, some of her classmates we even get interspersed between that. Uh, little snippets from different 
like technical books written about what happened with the Carrie White situation. So it does kind of feel odd when you're reading it like that. And, and Nathan and I had discussed how I don't I don't think this really works all that well because it kind of when you start just when you start getting invested in in what's happening in the story you get cut off for like a page and a half where you're reading somebody talking about this case of oh how you know this is where telekinesis comes from you know and it kind of just breaks the flow of the story i can kind of see what king is doing there because he's kind of building you up for what happens at the end of the book but i also don't think it works all that well no i i agree and one of the problems is in this he kind of he's giving you a lot of information that would be better learned just by experiencing the story right and he definitely reveals a lot of fundamentally necessary plot points through you're essentially reading a you talk about first-hand account versus second-hand account he's specifically giving you like a second-hand account you're reading something that sue snell who's one of the characters uh, in the story is one of the, the the young teenage girls you know you're reading it from the perspective of a book she published later after this event and you're getting information about who lives or dies sometimes from these sources and you're obviously not getting that from the characters themselves because they're living through it and they aren't aware of what's happening to them and i think i can see like you said where he's going with it but it is very clunky it isn't handled particularly organically I mean, I think it's at the end of the first page or something where he just throws out the line, but Carrie, of course, had telekinesis or something, something that that, that nature, you know what I mean? I mean, it's right. Yeah. It, you're not more than a page and a half in before he just blatantly jumps out and says, Carrie had telekinesis. Yeah. I don't even mind that so much, but it's later. It's only a few pages later when you start to get something from the book called like the shadow explodes or something yeah. like that, which is someone who's writing a book specifically about Carrie's uh, incident or involvement. So those elements, I agree. He's trying to do something there. That's a little bit different than just telling the story. It's what makes me question how much of that was done right from the get go and how much of it was trying to tie together a difficult story. You know, if he was really trying to sort of, exercise some demons or really write something that was in his mind in a way a sort of testament to these girls that he knew in school i think he doesn't quite know how to at this point in his career doesn't know quite how to capture that in a straightforward story yeah so he i sometimes can't tell if he's doing that to kind of stitch these pieces together or he's creating this feeling and this sense of when we look back at our lives, any time where we've had a scenario, and I think we've all probably, to our shame, yeah. maybe, have been involved in something where even if we weren't explicit uh, in participating, we might have been complicit in either laughing or being amused by someone mocking another person. In high school, some things like this do happen. Some people yeah. are, uh, King even points out, are very mockable. I, yeah. It's a rough thing to say. It's not a very politically correct thing to say, but almost every character in this book uh, including Carrie herself, a lot of people who even want her best interests, they're kind of they're put off by her or irritated by her, or they're irritated by her or even disgusted by her yeah. at certain points. And there sometimes you see them struggling under right under the surface just not to be cruel to her like everyone else is cruel to her. Yeah. And, uh, 
yeah, I, I think part of the what's happening with the way he's writing that too, especially, I, I really love that idea that he's capturing that the way that people, they don't even know what's causing them to dislike her. They just kind of feel this repulsion towards her. And I think it really speaks to, you know, that that's something that's more human nature because I think we all have known somebody like that, you know, in some sort of facet in our lives with either in school or at work, you know, we see that person and, we know that that could be us at in some point, you know, we, and we don't want to be seen with any kind of fly like these people have, you know, so a lot of times that kind of creates emotion of, of that repulsion or that anger that you want to just kind of distance yourself from that person because you don't want to ever be seen like that person is. Yeah. You don't want to experience it. And I think there's a feeling, particularly in high school that in Sue, Sue's character mentions in the beginning because she does, taunt Carrie. She's one of the, the, the girls who taunts Carrie in the beginning. It's pointed out by some of the staff at the school that, well, that's not really her MO. That's not normally how she is. But in the moment where Carrie's just standing there, and even King, I mentioned this compassion. I think he does engender compassion in the story. But one of the ways he does that is by kind of just being brutally honest about the way people are yeah. and think about people. You know, he kind of just lays it bare. He isn't trying to coddle us or spend a lot of time, look at poor Carrie, she's such a wonderful angel. I mean, he describes her in terms, that she's standing there like a kind of stupid cow, you, you know, it's kind of what he's saying. Yeah. And she's standing there dumbly, and the way he describes what's happening, it is kind of like almost repulsive, but you're not, you're kind of forced to think about it from her perspective, eventually. And you realize that Carrie isn't a stupid girl, she's not is clunky in her in herself as it seems but she's got the deck is stacked against her in a lot of ways yeah but it almost feels inevitable and i think that might be why we have this structure where we are led to prepare ourselves for some really bad event we know that bad things happen we can figure out pretty quickly that carrie white is probably not alive <laughs> by the end of this no. book uh, and we are told explicitly that some other characters are just dead <laughs> and we know that really bad things happened and we continue to get that it's not even just it's not a sense of foreboding i mean he's just basically telling us this is coming that something bad is happening and i think what he's done there is he has encapsulated this idea he's dealing with kind of multiple perspectives at one time which i think are effective here for the compassion part that I mentioned. While Sue is doing these things, she just, in her voice, she's hearing someone basically say to her, "Not that it's not that big a deal, you know? Yeah. Like, this isn't that bad. What we're doing here is not a big deal. And to be fair to Sue, she is not the catalyst. She is a kind of incidental catalyst. She tries to do the right thing, and it kind of backfires on her. But it's not because of her that it backfires. It just It's a kind of confluence of events. But Sue does try to make amends for for her role in this particular instance they're screaming plug it up and throwing tampons at her which it also points out one girl knew that carrie thought they were like used for batting your like lipstick yeah. <laughs> i mean she knew almost nothing about these things and they allowed her to kind of believe that she's just had this life where she's always been to them the target and as the story progresses we kind of see king maybe through the sue snell character grasping upon what it is to think this isn't a big deal this is just inevitable some people are going to be that kid yeah. there's always going to be that kid and you mock them in league with everybody else because hey that's what you do that's what they're there for and without the thought 
of what happens down the line what what becomes of these kids uh or what what is there are there really consequences to your actions you know the kids who bully someone until the kid commits suicide if you tell their story from only that perspective you lose that what if if only aspect that happens there so i think maybe that's why it's here we we we're watching simultaneously things that aren't taken as a big deal by some of these characters with the understanding that something really tragic and terrible happens as a direct result of them yeah yeah definitely um one thing I, I definitely got out of this book after rereading it too, and something I've ki- I'd kind of forgotten about, and I think it was probably because of the way that it's been adapted past that is I feel like Carrie is in the way that he writes her, like yeah, she is kind of kind of crapped upon by the world by her mother. Um, but one thing I didn't remember her being so much as is I think there's still a spirit of kind of freedom. There's a longing that you see in her. They, I didn't think you really got that with any of the adaptations, maybe like in quick visions, like her looking at the prom dress or being happy like that. But, but King does write about how, you know, she has this yearning to break free to like run away and like start a new life and be brand new. And I, and I liked having that because I don't like having her just be the complete foil where she even, you know, is, she hates herself and everything like that. I think there's more to her character in the way that it's written than maybe we get to see on the screen. I haven't seen every single adaptation of the of Carrie, so I'm not sure if any of those other ones had captured that at all. But um, I do think that there's more in the book there than you might see in her character in some of the film adaptations. Yeah, I think I think that's true. I I think that some versions do it better than others, and well, obviously very soon we'll talk about the De Palma version. I think the, what makes the book a different beast is that every version of Carrie that exists in movie form, every single one, of uh, the four that are out there, you can say one thing about them is that at some level Carrie, the actress who plays Carrie, is beautiful, even if there's an unconventional beauty to her. I think one could argue that maybe... Uh, that Sissy Spacek in the first Carrie is unconventionally beautiful, but I would still say she's beautiful. You know, right. ultimately at the end of the day, yeah. she can be very pretty, and she, she that's even used in the film Carrie when she kind of comes out of her shell. You're like, she is really a beautiful girl. Um, someone like Chloe Grace Moretz in the most recent version is just straight up pretty. She almost doesn't, <laughs> from a just pure visual standpoint, it's hard to understand why she's picked on in that particular way yeah. because you know there's nothing about her she doesn't come off like an odd duck uh angela bettis also is ultimately a pretty girl she's a little twitchy and strange she was in the 2002 tv movie version but again ultimately these these girls are all pretty you know yeah. uh and it doesn't take a great stretch of the imagination to see how they're pretty the thing about the the king version of the story and carrie is he 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 basically blatantly points out that she's not pretty yeah uh it's it's down to tons of reasons yeah and I'm, I'm, it's hard to talk about that like but he does he be that's kind of important to the story she's frumpy she doesn't know how to hold herself or even kind of interact with people uh she's overweight she has zits on all over her she doesn't she she has no kind of 
self-maintenance or self-presentation to her yeah. at all. And that sounds like a shallow thing to say, but in a, in a certain way, she just stands out at every single turn. She's not a beautiful girl. There's no point where you're watching, you know, it, it's, and that's kind of the dishonest part of like sometimes you get the film, oh, look, she's a she's an ugly duckling <laughs> who became a swan. That doesn't happen in this version no. of the story. There isn't a love story of any nature, really, between she and uh, Tom, the guy who takes her to the prom at the behest of Sue Snell. I mean, Tom is a good guy. He yeah. likes being around her. Uh, there's no inclination that he wants to hook up with her, but he's 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 happy to see her kind of coming out of her shell and realizing there's more to her. And I think that's the thing that resonates in the book is you see her from the exterior, and this is this is that compassion bit. You know you've seen people like this that you're just like, they got nothing going for them. They're just kind of a waste. Yeah. I mean, that's on the surface to tell he describes her, but there's a lot going on in Carrie's head. And the, the kind of tragic part to me, the part I can relate to a little bit in terms of being in high school and kind of remembering those feelings is the part where she is so fastidiously tries not to be the thing that she knows people are going to judge her for. Like, that's almost the tragedy. Carrie walks into this knowing that she's disadvantaged just by being the daughter of this crazy woman. Right, yeah. She knows the kids are going to judge her. She specifically saves money so she can go to this, like, Christian camp so she can show how she's not like the others. And at every turn, she just sinks further down into the mire of the expectations that people have for her. And that's almost the real tragic part is she's, she's not this... Kind of, um, I don't, I don't like Forrest Gump style character who isn't exactly aware of how much they're being mocked, of how much they're being ridiculed. She is, she's painfully aware of it. Yeah, and I think people look at her and what they see is someone who just isn't is is so below them that doing something to her is like doing something to an animal. I mean, there's points where yeah. King even describes her from their perspective is as if she is like an animal you know he uses words like bovine and things like that and you know even sue snell calls her you big daft pudding or something (laughs) like at the very beginning and these are cruel words that people do say sometimes and but i think that that's the key to the book which is that king gives her an exterior that you kind of understand why people mock her make fun of her it doesn't give you them the right to do so and it's understanding that we meet people many times that they might, they may seem deserving of something, but we don't ever put ourselves in their their shoes. And he, over time, develops to the point where we are seeing Carrie's viewpoint. I think it's very telling that when we get to the big black prom event that you mentioned, is that we hear every detail about that thing from every other perspective. And he saves Carrie's for the very, very last. Yeah. I mean, by the time we get to Carrie, we we basically know what's happened. Yeah. I mean, we she's basically blown the whole damn town up with her mind, uh, more or less. I mean, she just goes on a rampage of destruction. But we don't get Carrie's viewpoint until the very end. And I think that makes it all the more kind of painful and effective yeah. for being that way. I, I think it's interesting, too, um, the fact that whenever you typically see like a somebody who's you know would be seen as like a loser they always kind of fall into the same tropes they're the kid who gets tossed into the dumpster or you know somebody dumps trash on their head or you know gives them a wedgie or shoves them in a locker and that's pretty much the end of it they might get like a moment of you know retribution at some point in a film or a book or something but 
I think King really delves into this idea of who they are as people in a way that's not seen in a, in a lot of other books or, or wasn't at least in that time. And I think it's, it is brutally honest about the way not only that that person would feel, but the way that other people around her would treat her or feel towards her. Um, you know, and that's something I really appreciated on a reread. I think, I think that's what I'm excited about of going back and rereading a lot of these King books, because I read them at a, a very young age and now with you know time has passed on and i'm getting to that point in my life where i i'm starting to you know get actual nostalgia for you know the feelings of being young or and i can see it through a different lens i, I think i think they're going to kind of impact me in a different way than it did when i'm just kind of reading them viscerally as a you know eight nine ten year old kid yeah, I think so, too, and I think that's what's interesting. Particularly, I do think there are many King books that are better written than Carrie, but it's interesting to go back to that and see that he really does encapsulate, I think, can be a universal feeling, not about just high school, because unfortunately, I think today's age, we can point to a lot of scenarios where we see people acting in the same way on a larger scale. You know, this isn't something that's only true of teenagers. It, it Sometimes high school can be a particular breeding ground cesspool for this behavior. Yeah. But I do – I think that there's a lot there. There's two things I kind of want to talk about before we start looking at the movies. Uh, one of them is a sense of like the moral awareness, which I think ties into the religion aspect. Yeah. And the religion part is interesting to me personally because I th- find that King's got an, a very interesting sort of – perspective when it comes to religion and faith and things like that because i would it's probably fair to say that on one hand king is probably a lot more fair-minded a lot more uh positive towards areas of faith in god in his books than many other horror authors yeah i think you could see elements of that in books like the stand uh and really a lot of his novels uh have an element where Having a faith in God or even this kind of basis where God is at the center of of his stories, King doesn't really shy away from or isn't afraid of that aspect no. of it. And King himself will say, well, you know, I believe in God, and it plays into his stories. You can kind of see that. There's a famous exchange where he claims that Kubrick called him one time, like in the <laughs> yeah, middle of the night. That's right. And just asked him and said, do you believe in God? And he was like, yes. And he said, I thought so, and hangs up the phone. <laughs> Uh, which I think would be – that's an interesting discussion we can have when we get to The Shining. That yeah. being said, and I think he, he does have characters who are strong in their faith. Um, Mother Abigail comes to mind yeah. from The Stand. The Stand doesn't work as a story without religion and without strong characters of faith and without God. No. I mean, uh, to be to be blunt. And it's not the only book that's like that. No. Uh, but religion – and and practitioners of religion don't always come out the best. No, not at all. In King work, and this is and and this is probably the first one. Although I would say that most cases, what we see, we do have characters like Father Callahan in the Salem's Lot, and other That's characters true. who are are characters that struggle with their faith. So, but what I think what happens is many times because these are horror stories, King tends to find characters that have been. That religion and their sensibilities don't mesh well together. Yeah, uh, that's to say, people who are either good at manipulating it or have been manipulated by it, or it just is like oil and water with their own kind of idiosyncrasies. 
And we have a character here in Margaret White who is one of the creepiest villains, I think, that's in a Stick King book because she's not really a villain no. in her own mind. And she's not even fully a villain. She's just seen as a weirdo, but she's definitely... Uh, I think many people would say that Chris, who's the kind of spoiled, nasty, mean-spirited girl at the heart of the story, is the villain. She certainly is to a degree, but not. she hasn't done the damage that Margaret White has done. Right. Uh and Margaret White herself has a clearly been a victim at some point because of of what she believes. I think it's fair to say for anyone. It's interesting because I've sat down and talked to people with long discussions about how King uh, creates stories that are essentially Christian allegories, and then I hear people who are like, "He's horrible because he runs down every chance he gets. He runs down Christian or religious characters." I, I I think that the truth is somewhere in between, and it's it's a little more nuanced. But I will say this. What we're dealing with in this book and in stories like The Mist and in other cases where we have questionable characters of faith, this is not a normal form of of Christianity that Carrie's mother is practicing. (laughs) I think that that King is offering that there are issues with a mainline kind of religious perspective sometimes that the people with an unhealthy mindset can latch on to. I mean – it's clear that like Carrie's mother doesn't even want her to go to the 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 Christian camp because the Baptists and the Methodists and everything and the Protestants they're all heathens yeah. and, you know uh, she's way out there I mean she's locker in the prayer closet yeah and she did, somehow she was married and yet she and her husband both believe that sex was sin that they shouldn't do I mean there's a line in the book that says that she thought she actually had some form of like stomach cancer that turned out to be pregnancy yeah, yeah. Uh, in no way so we have to wonder where that came from and we never really quite get that answer i don't believe no no as to why margaret white is damaged the way she is i assume that someone twisted her the same way she's trying to twist carrie <laughs> and yet carrie seems to be resistant of it oh well, it's it's funny because i did I think this is like the perfect time for me to actually bring back the, this uh, part of the book that I, I um, marked that I wanted to bring up while we were talking about this. Cause I think this is, this kind of speaks exactly into this. I think it's kind of how he talks about how religion can warp people and just perceptions and, and what it's done to carry. And this particular section, when I was reading this just really like struck me, this is just so this reads so much like such quintessential King to me. And I, I'm sure you'll probably agree with me on this. So this is on, um, this is pretty early on into the book. Um, she said, it starts off, but the room was actually dominated by a huge plaster crucifix on the far wall, fully four feet high. Mama had mail ordered it special from St. Louis. The Jesus impaled upon it was frozen in a grotesque muscle straining rictus of pain, mouth drawn down in a groaning curve. His crown of thorns bled scarlet streams down temples and forehead. The eyes were turned up in a medieval expression of slanted agony. Both hands were also drenched in blood, and the feet were nailed to a small plaster platform. This corpus had also given Carrie endless nightmares in which the mutilated Christ chased her through dream corridors, holding a mallet and nails, begging her to take up the cross and follow him. Just lately, these dreams had evolved into something less understandable, but more sinister. The object did not seem to be murder, but something even more awful. Alone. I mean, that's pretty powerful stuff in just like a couple, in just one paragraph of writing. That's pretty horrifying yeah. too, uh, and I think 
De Palma kind of latches onto oh my that gosh, a little yes. bit with, with the with the Christ that's hanging on the wall. And that's one of the scariest things I've ever seen. It looks like the Children of the Corn made it or something. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's, that's an interesting passage, and it's funny, too, because I remember as a kid going into some churches and seeing, you know, being a little bit surprised that, wait, why is Christ still up there on the cross? Right. Which is a very Catholic sort of a thing, but I'm like, I thought he got off, because <laughs> that's freaking me out a little bit. Uh, but but what they're describing there is the emphasis, uh, it makes sense that you don't just have a Christ on a cross for Carrie's mother. You have a Christ that's bleeding. Yeah. You have a Christ that's deteriorating and decaying, it sounds like. And that's kind of what happened has happened to her faith. It's decaying and rotting because of where she's putting her emphasis. Her emphasis is totally on sin and death and and deterioration and like the flesh, if you will, which is no kind of like faith at all, really. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's it's poisoned her it's poisoned her daughter and it's kind of almost manifesting itself in this like gross uh transformation of this thing that she she uh, it's supposed to represent something beautiful right. but it's so twisted and it's actually the christ itself has become this monster that that is dominating carrie's like dreams and is pushing her towards in the, in the opposite direction. I think he's captured a pretty interesting picture of what it means when someone distorts faith and starts moving in a different direction. Yeah. And he does it all through this crucifix. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely that's definitely hitting the nail on the head. Um <laughs> yeah, the nail. Yeah. Um, like don't make a joke about it, Seth. Don't make a joke about it, Seth. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's something that i wanted to bring up um about like i don't know if you have any other major points you wanted to make seth um did you have anything else no that's that's pretty much it for the for the novel uh the only other thing i wanted to talk about was at the very end i mentioned that when you get to the point when carrie and when carrie does go buck at the prom i mean essentially too king uses blood all through this so you've right. got the crucifixion blood but you also have the blood obviously the, the menstruation blood he talks about that a lot maybe too much and he also has the pig's blood which comes down on her head which is what initiates this moment where she snaps and sort of goes into shock and panic um and i think in this shock state her powers sort of almost go from her controlling her powers to her anger and everything and her surprise, she almost goes into defense mode and her powers kind of start controlling her. Yeah. At least that's sort of what I, like that's one uh, interpretation. Another one that I think is interesting, and I don't think he's that subtle about it, is the way Carrie starts to think in the last segment is almost like her mother. Yeah. Like when the pig's blood drops, did you notice that? Yeah. Like I'd written this in uh, the notes that like, I feel like he's getting at the way the cadence of her thoughts, the way she's thinking. Suddenly, it's everything is, here's this person. This is what they've done. What can I do to them? Like, it becomes a a kind of fear response punishment. Yeah. Uh, you know, anger's in there somewhere. We see this person. This is what they've done. Here's how I'll punish them. You know, she works it through. Uh, you see this visually displayed in the the 
the movie, the De Palma movie, but she's, what can I do to them? I'll turn on the sprinklers. Yeah. And, but all of it is after she's made a judgment. It's very much Margaret White, which is almost in some ways the big tragedy of the story right. because it seems like the thing Carrie fights against more than the kids, more than her own lack of support in, in school and in social life is her mother. The thing she doesn't want to be is her mother. She like even when she goes to the prom, uh, when she goes to these events, it seems like everything she's doing is to just further distance herself from her mother. Like you said, she wants to be free of that more than anything. She doesn't want to be part of that culture. I think it's interesting that as she's considering her telekinesis. She gets to a point when she's trying to think, where did it come from? Is it the is it a gift from hell? You know, right. is it some dark power that gave this to me? Is it an angel thing? Is it something God wants me to have to use? And she kind of comes to an interesting conclusion because she doesn't really decide. She It's not that she doesn't think it's either one. She just really doesn't care anymore. She doesn't think that that answer to that yeah. question is that important. And once she does that, she gets, she becomes more adept at being able to control the ability itself. When she gets to an idea that it, there's not necessarily a moral right that this came from or a moral wrong. She starts to try to figure out things for herself. What can I do with this? Right. Now, that may also lead to the floodgates opening, which causes all this problem. But I think it's the kind of sadness is that she does ultimately kind of die alone like this Christ in her dream seems to be pointing her towards. And Sue is with her, but she doesn't quite get that. You know right. what I mean? She's just – she's kind of become her mother she's frayed and she's scared and it's tragic and it's sad and i think that's kind of one of the tragedies she's embracing her mother's worldview at the very end there as everything's crumbling down and if it you're kind of pointing out that her mother gave her all the wrong set of tools to deal with something like what she had yeah to deal with life at all exactly. but particularly to deal with this like telekinesis and i think he really does underscore that at the very very end because the end is almost a cutesy something you see in a bad 50s B movie <laughs> yeah, or, or like sci-fi movie where like, well, the government comes to the conclusion there are no more cases of this. <laughs> Everything is fine. And then you kind of fast forward, you go over to Appalachia or something and, you know, this woman is talking about how her daughter um, is born, has been born and how has, has – she thinks that she's got the gift, she, you know, the telekinesis. But what's interesting is the way King kind of shows it is this woman's hopeful for her child right she's hopeful for this ability in her and it's even suggested that oh you know what i think that somebody in our past and our heritage had this and it's like he's suggesting a culture that's nurturing of it that's a completely different culture and you almost the tragedy is kind of compounded because you wonder well what could carrie have been had she been born into this culture yeah into a scenario where someone would be willing to embrace and nurture her and I don't think that these themes can be tossed off that lightly without thinking of how they affect us in our world. Yeah. You know, uh, the minute we start labeling people, prejudging people, and kind of pushing these monikers of villain of wrong onto people, eh, we we may be building monsters we're not aware of. Yeah, and that, fun fact that little girl grew up to be uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, from there, how do you feel about moving on to that De Palma version? (laughs) Yeah, let's move somewhere. Um, (laughs) Yeah. 
Canada. I on I thought you were going to reveal some like uh, specific Dark Tower character that I never knew was like, oh wait, amazing, and then <laughs> then you did that. <laughs> it was really Mother Abigail. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, so let's talk about De Palma, and let's talk about specifically Carrie. So King has come out and said that he kind of thinks that the movie version of Carrie is better than than the book version, and he kind of points to a couple things. He does say that he feels like it just has a little bit more fun with the concept. It isn't quite as so weighty uh, or is trying to be as kind of terse as, as his book was at points. And I don't, there are going to be points, I think most of the time we talk about adaptations, there's always going to be that line, hey, the book is better than the movie. I do think that King is one of those authors, and some of this is still, I think, in service of how he's a good storyteller. Sometimes there are movies of King's that are better than the books. Yeah. And I do personally feel that Carrie, the, the Brian De Palma version of Carrie, is one of those movies that makes an improvement over the book. Yeah. Seth, what do you think? Yeah, about I can, that? I can definitely agree with that. I think that movie is, it, it's, it's definitely gone. I think it's gone above the novel because I think when people think about it, they're not typically thinking about the novel. They're, when you hear Carrie, you're thinking about the movie. You're thinking about that infamous prom scene like that. Those images that De Palma created, you know, there are stuck in your mind just the way he shot that movie. Um, you know, even from just like the opening scene, the whole plugger plug it up scene, like it's almost shot with this kind of like weird soft focus. And it kind of feels almost like you're floating through a dream that like suddenly turns into a nightmare. I think that movie. Yeah. I, I would agree that I think it, it is better than the book is. And, and I definitely think, you know, as far as adaptations go, it's, it's definitely one of the most iconic of the King adaptations, and I think it's going to continue to remain one of the most fondly remembered ones. And I, and I do think it's a good movie. I do enjoy it. I don't think it's, I don't think it's really scary. Like I said, kind of about the novel as well too. But it, it's got great imagery in it. There's just something about that movie that it's it's a, it's a good De Palma film. <laughs> I agree, and uh, I'm someone who, I know there are people out there who are sort of like De Palma fanatics. I'm not. I'm not I mean, either. I appreciate what De Palma does in some cases. I don't love every one of his movies. I, uh, it is very clear that he has a deep fascination with Hitchcock and some of the earlier filmmakers and Michael Antonioni and people like that, and he draws on a lot of that, but sometimes it's also very, he does it in a very naked sort of way to the point where sometimes it is distracting i don't really think it's distracting as much in carry because he has a good story uh baseline to work from and he really is working from the novel it isn't exactly like the novel there are versions of the there are movie versions of the novel that are probably a little more faithful in some ways to the novel and its structure but i think that one of the smart things about the carry adaptation is that it chooses not to be faithful to certain elements that maybe wouldn't work as well on screen yeah yeah and I remember uh, there's a there's a really good documentary out right now called De Palma, about Brian De Palma, and and he is in a segment there he does talk about Carrie and he does talk about going through the script and just kind of nixing all of those sort of like footnotes, if you will, those pieces where it is a reference to uh, Sue Snell talking about her experience after the fact. And De Palma, one of the strengths of the film is that he takes all of that stuff out. 
this happens a hundred percent in the moment. Yeah. You know, there's no foreshadowing. There's foreshadowing, but there's no actual like someone coming on screen. There's no bookends here. There's no uh, placeholders or flashing back to what happens at the prom. There's no moment where someone comes in and says, "Remember that bad thing that happened at the prom." Yeah. So De Palma, in his own way, I think the other thing is you talked about the movies being scary. I think that the De Palma movie, when he gets to, gets to the black prom does get to be a little creepy. it does yeah i think that the creepier stuff just like the books the creepier stuff exists with margaret white and but i will say this i think that carry the book and carry the movie even though they both fallen into the horror genre they're not really hard no i think they're much more in the vein of like a sci-fi thriller yeah if you want to be honest, maybe even more like a dramatic thriller uh, with some supernatural elements to them. So I don't think that they are a conventional horror, horror story in a horror movie. But what De Palma does that is very interesting is that he has to find a different way to make that black prom the centerpiece, the kind of magnetic center of the whole thing to the point in, where it is the culminating force you're driving towards that and what i think is interesting is king chooses to just tell you straight up something horrible is going to happen at the prom and people will die i mean he says something horrible will happen to the yeah. prom and people will die he uses those those segments and excerpts to do that the palma gets rid of that so he still has to find a way to drive you towards that and he does it kind of twofold one of them is that when you get to the black prom it's by far a showstopper in terms of the way he does it yeah. The way he creates and crafts it. The other is that he is driving everybody directly to that moment. You know you're watching a horror movie uh, because of he uses a lot of musical cues. He draws a lot from Hitchcock. There's a kind of a lot of weird parallels to the movie Marnie, which is a, a lesser-known Hitchcock movie a little bit. But De Palma's using a lot of those kind of... Almost he uses the psycho shower music a couple times. Yeah in the shower scene in a different way to underscore something completely different than what happened in Psycho. So he's having some fun there. But I think his filming style is he gets away again from using horror tropes to drive us towards the horror and he instead creates a feeling of unease. He does that through the way he keeps showing these kind of normal mundane things contrasted with Margaret White's weirdo world that she she's, has at home that the Christ that sits in that room where she keeps the closet where she keeps putting Carrie is very disturbing. It is, it is really disturbing. Uh, it looks like it is like, oh, hi, he who walks behind the road. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's definitely messed up. Uh, it it is essentially the kind same kind of thing King's describing, but it's just more visceral. If you don't know the story of Carrie, if you walked into the, if you pick up the book and you pick up the movie and you're watching or reading them. You're obviously not going to get to the end of Carry the Book without knowing that something bad happened. <laughs> yeah. But in the movie version, it's actually the same way. You're going to before the prom happens, you're going to know that this is the this is where the rubber meets the road. Yeah. Where the telekinesis hits the fan, so to speak. <laughs> and this is you know that's the moment. And De Palma does, and you would know that even if you'd never known the story of Carrie. I mean, De Palma, I don't think it's just the story being predictable. De Palma keeps driving you towards this moment. Yeah. And he does that a lot through Sissy Spacek. I think Sissy Spacek is the reason 
this movie works as well as it does. She's completely different Carrie in some ways than the Carrie in the book. Not completely different, but I think ultimately the character she summons is a bit different. Yeah. Yeah. Than that than that character. Yeah, and I, I really like I really like the casting in this movie too. Like I, I even like we said, you know, Sissy Spacek, you know, she can be really beautiful too. Um but I think she was like the perfect choice for Carrie. There's just something not not like off, but she she looks different. She's a different looking person, and it fits the role of Carrie the way that she plays her. You know, especially when you get to the prom scenes because you see her like she finally looks just radiant. She's gorgeous, and then her eyes like when she realizes what's happening to her. I mean, that whole scene is oh just constructed so well. Out. To me, that's scary. That's scary yeah. when in the music. That's when you get the psycho chords. Yeah. And the eyes, and she moves her head just like a predatory bird, and she flips around, and you're like, oh man, they're they're done. And it is it, it is an interestingly cast movie, and I think particularly with her, she captures kind of that naivete. Like yeah. it's a kind of a different thing, but you can see how she's this sheltered girl. She's very mousy. She's soft spoken. Uh, one of the things that's interesting between some of the versions is. In the book, we see when we first really start to hear Carrie's thoughts, they're not happy thoughts. No. I mean, she's basically thinking of how bad, and, and this is what happens to kids who are ostracized and picked on. Their thoughts go from, you know, being lighthearted to, I just want to hurt the people that did this to me. Yeah. I mean, Carrie's thoughts are kind of angry, ugly stuff. The Sissy Spacek character, at least the way it, she seems much more gentle and good-hearted even through a lot of this stuff not to the point of like a pariah right but you get the feeling she just seems a lot more mild-mannered and until until she goes off and in some of her scenes with her mother you start to see that coming out but i think it's a fantastic performance just uh the vulnerability that first scene is probably one of the creepiest too yeah. where she she's she really gets that scene. I think that scene is way better in the movie than it is in the books where she has the realization she's having her first period. In the mo- in the book, she kind of stands there. She doesn't know what's going on. And here she's freaking yeah. out. She's shrieking. She gets that point in the book, but, I mean, it's just so much more visceral. And you really feel the kind of trauma that's happening to her. And I think it's interesting. There's actually a lot more sex in the book yeah. than there is in the movie. Yeah, definitely. In the film. Or uh, sex and sexual relations. I mean, there's scenes where Carrie's kind of exploring her body in the book that are almost like bordering on, you know, uh, it just, it, it's very different. There's a lot more sexual activity in the book. It's not that it's not hinted at in the film, but De Palma, who's not normally a guy to move away from that kind of stuff, it's almost like his because De Palma can be a voyeur at times. You know what I mean? I mean he's you know yeah he's got a lot of those movies in his repertoire, <laughs> but it's almost like Carrie particularly he moves the camera back from her. I mean we see her in the beginning and she's kind of naked, the blood running down, but he he almost he he almost pulls it back so as not to continually intrude on her to give her some space, right? If that makes sense, it's a, it's an interesting style, but I think it adds a lot to our sympathies for her like the way he films her even the moments and he also shows in ways in which she just gets overwhelmed like when she's dancing with william cat tom at the prom and then everything starts to kind of spin around a little too much you know what i mean like it's almost like she's starting to lose control there's a little bit of euphoria going on it's just that stuff i find really fascinating because it's a, a director trying to figure out how do i give you the same thing the book gave you but in a different way yeah 
Yeah, it's uh, it definitely is a success, and I think that's why it stood the test of time for so long. I think it's still why people will go back and rewatch that movie. Um, I, I really think you could probably. I would almost recommend watching the prom scene, like doing a scene by scene, um, just review of that if you've seen it already, because there's just so much going on. The way that he shoots things in that scene are it's done so well. Like the the way it goes into slow motion, you know, just watching the blood fall around her, and I, I think it's funny too, like the way that Sissy Spacek plays her in the film. Um, you know, when she first has it, when she gets her actual period the first time she's horrified she's terrified she's like almost acting like a little child would you know if they were afraid of the dark or something like that and then when she it's a good way to put it when, yeah. when she's covered in the pig's blood it's like it's almost like when you like you said it's like the power's take her over it's like it, in the book she's trying to flex her powers like it specifically says that it's like a muscle she's trying to flex it to move stuff she says literally he writes in italics flex, flex. Yeah. Like she's telling her mind flex i was like yeah okay you could be more artful there but but it's like she like this is this is like the real <clears throat> her coming into womanhood for herself if you know what i'm saying in that regard like this like she she has telekinesis it is a part of her. It is who she is. And this is like the first menstruation of her true life as something different, even though it, this is like towards the end of herself. But this is like another, it's like another almost flowering kind of situation as you would see like in other ones where it'd just be like, oh, honey, I'm so glad that you, you're finally a woman now. And, and this is like such a dichotomous like view of what that, would mean for a woman you know it's it's like now let's kill someone. yeah exactly <laughs> day of the woman well i think it it, it, it does kind of harken back to that element of like what could she become or who would she be if she in a different series of circumstances it's like this world that she's in these people just can't handle the fact that someone like her is coming into womanhood you know yeah. what i mean it just like unravels everything and i mean that's at the heart of the story, both both versions. Uh, I my personal favorite is the when she makes the like fire hose yeah. and just starts like scalding people <laughs> with it. I, I always kind of appreciate that the way it unravels like a snake and she's moving it around. And uh, I think it's also we can't. There's a lot of good performances, like you said, in the movie. Um, I actually think Amy Irving does a kind of underrated job as yeah, Snell. I like her in that too. And, a, and a, an actor I've always kind of liked, even though he's not really that great, is William Cat. Yeah. I, I will always have a soft spot for the house movie yeah. and for uh, a greatest American hero. Yeah, definitely. But I think he's pretty good here. He has awesome hair. <laughs> yes, he does. Yeah, it's like this beautiful <laughs> afro. It looks like a like African tree or something. Um, but the when you get towards the the kind of heart of the movie like the scenes that are the most kind of disturbing to watch you also have piper laurie oh, yeah. who is so intimidating and so overwhelming as her mother i mean i, I this is might i don't know if it speaks to mental illness but not many days go by where i don't sometimes just you know have that run through my head they're all gonna laugh yeah, at I you know. <laughs> she's like she's like mommy dearest times a hundred yeah, but it's such a better performance. Yeah. I was actually thinking of Mommy Dearest and like the screaming of no wire hangers <laughs> and it's so camp and a lot of performances like that, you know, we even think back to like the Betty Davis and the you know, Joan Collins' sort of performances, they're all related to like 
there's an element of camp. Yeah. There isn't really an element of camp. I mean, it gets pretty heightened and pretty frenzied, but I don't think I'd put the Piper Laurie performance in the realm of camp. No, definitely you know not. What I mean, no. she's like, she's definitely like frayed at the edges, <laughs> but I think the hysteria is a part of who she is. It's not even, um, uh, she's one repressed. Yeah. <laughs> she's a piece of work. And it's so creepy in the movie or in the book, Carrie stops her heart. Yeah, you know, that's right. She just, boom, stops, stops, stops her heart. The Palma gets kind of creative and has Carrie more or less crucified with knives. <laughs> yeah. And she's hanging there just like the creepy Christ, which lo- looks a little bit like her. Yeah. You know, it's kind of a weird sort of a thing. And it's a very spooky scene when you see her there uh, before the house comes down, you know, that she's there kind of pinned to the wall. <laughs> Uh, one last thing I wanted to say about this film before we move into the other stuff, unless you have something else, Seth, was now in the book, did you get the impression, I feel like the film versions, and this is probably they, something they just instinctively are going to do because you've got an actress who's playing this character. When you get to Margaret White, I, Margaret White doesn't show a lot of concern or affection uh, or warmness in any way at all towards her daughter in the book. No. No, not at all. I think that in Piper Laurie's case, and particularly in, like, uh, you also have Patricia Clarkson plays her later, and then you also have Julian Moore. There are moments where they do hint that she has some kind of maternal care that maybe has just been repressed all this time for her child. There are moments when she starts to show Carrie some modicum of affection. I think that works a little bit better. It makes her feel more human. Yeah. Uh, she's definitely kind of just straight crazy in the books <laughs> yeah. there there aren't that might be one of the downfalls of the book there's not many nuances to margaret White. No. i mean you could if you want to make the case that she's a fish in the barrel religious stereotype you probably could. yeah definitely but i think i think Barbara laurie's performance pulls her out of that a little bit we see she's definitely crazy but by giving her elements where she does have affection for her daughter but it's so swallowed up by everything else that she is that makes her creepier to i me. think so too it makes her more real yeah yeah, it's definitely it definitely took it took a lot of what King was trying to do, and I think it improved on a lot of those those different facets too. But uh, that's pretty much I, all I had for this version of it. So I think we can probably move on to the next ones. And King has said too, really, after you have this version, why do you need it? Yeah, I mean, I don't quite know. Like you said, I'm not sure if it's a full blown horror classic the way everyone else says it is, but it's a very good movie. It's definitely probably in the top tier of Stephen King adaptations. Yeah. And I think Spacek does an awesome job. So if you haven't seen the movie, I would say definitely see yeah. it. It's a great movie. It is, it's, a, it's a very well-made movie, and it's an inventive movie. Uh, I can say almost none of those things <laughs> about 1999's The Rage Carry 2, <laughs> which uh, it's, it, this, is, this is the downside when you want to do something and you want to be very completist yeah. about it. And you want to make sure you watch and talk about everything because, uh, particularly King, this will get you, this will get the best of you with King. He often has some movies in his adaptation list that are you know he's either had to take his name off of or are barely adaptations. And I kind of feel like this one kind of falls into that category. Yeah, nineties were not particular like ninety four and even ninety nine. You had the Green Mile the same year, which is these are these are. 
on the higher end of Stephen King adaptations. There's no question. There's no question. But during the 90s, we got a lot of bad Stephen King adaptations. And some of them were not even adaptations as much as they were low-rent bargain bin ripoffs that just somehow managed to snag the name and become a sequel. Um, the 90s was full of this stuff. And we'll talk about them, I'm sure, at some point. But, like, Pet Cemetery 2, yeah. uh, Children of the Corns 2 through 60. Um, you know... Uh, sometimes they come the back a million times. Yeah, sometimes they keep coming back because the paychecks <laughs> don't stop cashing. And the Lawnmower Man. There's two Lawnmower Man, <laughs> I think there's, man I, movies in the 90s. Aren't there, like, four Mangler movies? I don't know. I don't want to think about that right now. But so I think the only thing that is notable about this one is that it's clearly the sequel to a somewhat higher profile movie, meaning that the original King movie was pretty good. It'd almost be like, oh, here's The Shining 2. And it doesn't really belong to that group of movies like when you're getting the lawnmower man and children of the corn two and sleepwalkers and all that stuff, it comes a few years later and it's really belongs. And I think it's, it's initiated and jumpstarted by the scream franchise. Yeah. You know, scream comes in. That's when scream was like the worst thing to happen to horror. I mean, yeah. I like scream to a degree, but it started this really annoying, obnoxious trend of teenage horror that I think we got some of the worst stuff in the genre. Oh, and yeah. it, it, it dominated the genre for a few years there. It was 99, we were just starting to get into the supernatural thriller again. And that was welcome. But for the period of time there, for the years that we had this, we got saddled with some junk. And this is this is one of them. Um, it's weird. The director's Cat Shea. So you look at this like, oh, we have a female director here. But she's probably the movie that she turns out is probably far more misogynistic than anything that Brian De Palma did in the original Carrie and uh, when I look at the rest of her filmography movies like Strip to Kill 1 and 2 and uh, a movie called Dance of the Damned which uh, looks I think was maybe later turned into a movie called The Sleep of the Vampire so um, lots of winning all the way up with that one Uh, so this maybe fits into that the Thing about the rage, Carrie. Too. Have you seen this movie? I, I've seen it years ago. I just all, yeah. all I can you can leave it. Like all, all I can remember from this is is thinking, how do they pitch this film? Like we take Carrie, but we put her in a hot topic. That's a, that's basically what happens here. Well, I think it's really that it's looking at the kids like Scream, and not just Scream, but the summer right before this, you'd had Halloween came back. Yeah, we had Halloween H two O, and I think that maybe it was those sorts of decisions that jump-started this thing. And they probably didn't need a lot of time to try to get it up and running, and they probably didn't even need King's... Uh, King, at this point, had better things to do, like rehabilitate from being hit by a van <laughs> than to worry about this movie. Um, it's in, it's interesting because it comes out in March 12, 1999. This is literally just about a month before Columbine. Uh, I mention that because kind of what happens in The Rage I think a year later we might not even be getting it. It's interesting too because App Pupil had just been made the following fall. That's true, yeah. All of this right before Columbine, and I think most of these movies um, wouldn't have been come up because when Columbine happened, uh, it it also drew some parallels to another King story that he wrote of Bachman, the um, called Rage. Interestingly right. enough, <laughs> Rage we have here the Rage character. Yeah. Uh, that's for a different discussion. Uh, King has said a few times he almost kind of regrets writing Rage, yeah. uh, mostly because it was tied to this in any way. But you have 
some school violence. You have a big death scene at a rave. Uh, the people here are cruel to this character in ways that aren't necessarily that different than uh, the way they treated Carrie, but they, it, it's just a little bit more pronounced. This movie, King talked about how he didn't think his first book was artless. Well, I think he was too hard on himself. This movie is artless. Yes. I mean, this movie is hollow and stupid uh, and strange because it actually does take some steps to tie itself to the original Carrie movie, even though all it intends to do is rehash everything that happened. Right. We're going to have another character. This is Emily Burgle, who I thought, this is cute enough. She's cute enough. But, I mean, again, they try to make her look weird and intense. They're not that effective. She's no sissy spacek. She doesn't in any way really resemble her. There's some interesting things going on, though, because if you remember that Margaret White's husband in the novel dies. Right, yeah. But in the in the um, film... She, I think it's implied that he goes off with Barbara Lang. Uh, in the in, the reason I mention this is because Barbara Lang is the mother of the character who is Carrie uh, Carrie White's uh, uh, the the Carrie White whatever you want to call it analog. Oh my gosh. So Rachel Lang is the main character. <laughs> so they have this Barbara Lang character, and so I guess we're sort of supposed to believe that maybe you know the the gene that 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 spreads is coming from this uh the the Carrie's whoever Carrie's biological father was I'm not sure how much they go into that but honestly I was having a hard time remaining uh, retaining consciousness during this film Amy Irving comes back as Sue Snell that's like really disappointing yeah. uh, she has almost nothing to do the thing that's really strange is Rachel Lang's who gets tele realizes she has telekinesis we don't go through all the menstrual stuff again but one of her friends is kind of the mean girls cause her to commit suicide and so then suddenly you know she zooms in on that jason london the great jason london (laughs) (laughs) who who wasn't doing a lot back then is doing even less now I see that he, uh, I remember seeing him in a TV movie of Jason and the Argonauts. I always think of him for Dazed and Confused. Yeah. Uh, but, he's in, but he, in 2017, he did make, uh, he's got several movies to his name, including Mississippi River Sharks. Oh. And The Second Coming of Christ. Oh, my God. Uh, so, I don't, don't know what's going on. Is that, is that the... I'd like to see them come. That's the sequel to uh, Mallrats, I think, isn't it? The Second Coming of Christ. <laughs> Probably, yes. Um, that or Mississippi River Sharks yeah. is a sequel to <laughs> to Mallrats. Uh, I'd like to see both of those just combined into one movie, and <laughs> it, it just goes nowhere that you don't see coming. I mean, it's pushing to this one event. It's bloodier, it's gorier than the original movie, but it's also far less effective. It just shows that they're they're only concerned about capturing scenes of people being bashed by things that that Rachel aka Carrie throws at them. There's no reason for this to be Carrie too. Uh it also makes a really kind of weird uh point that so Sue Snell is sees this girl, remembers Carrie and what Carrie did and at one point walks her through this kind of uh the remains, the like burned up remains of the old school are still there. <laughs> I mean, it's like, and you're like, why haven't they cleared these away? <laughs> it's been all these years later, and this, you still got this crap sitting out of here. I mean, it's like, 
it's it's that's pretty egregious. Yeah. It seems like some kid would have fallen into those by now or something. But she walks with with uh, Rachel through this area, and it's clear that Sue Snell is like recognizing, hey, there's a lot of warning signs here, just like there were with Carrie. I give Sue some latitude in the first movie; she couldn't have seen most of that coming. But now she basically just sits by on the sidelines while the same exact thing happens all over again. That's that's pretty unlucky. It's also pretty poor. <laughs> On the part of you, anyone could have intervened here and stopped this from happening. Yeah. It's a bad movie. It does represent, it does sort of point out one thing, which is that the people that created this movie had no idea why the original source material worked. Right. Uh, all the things we just talked about, they think that this movie was simply about bullies are bad, and if you push a girl too far, she goes crazy. <laughs> and there's not much more I can say about this movie. It's badly made, it, none of the scenes work. Uh, the, it, it's it's aggravating how they keep replaying. And remember, we talked about how the horror tropes in the original weren't really there in the book. King King kind of eschews the horror tropes so he can tell you a story that develops the horror internal. Right. De Palma uses some horror tricks, but he still makes it so, primarily about Sissy Spacek and what happens to her. This movie does dumb stuff like suddenly you see these super flashes of the lockers banging oh open God. but they're banging open so loudly they feel like gunshots <laughs> which to me is like suddenly i'm thinking about columbine yeah, even though i right. shouldn't be you know watching this thing again and i'm like what is happening it's just it's a bad movie no one really should ever watch it uh i can't believe anybody who made this uh even the people who made this again anyone who's seen this movie is in any way proud of it or thinks it's worthwhile i hate to say that i'm not i usually try to find something to like in most movies and this I can't find anything that I think warrants this movie ever being made. Yeah, I can definitely agree with that. <laughs> yeah, it, it just if it, it, it rightfully fell off the radar, which almost makes no sense why, like three years later, they decide to do another carry for television. <laughs> and I I wonder about that because I know that Stephen King he does he has a thing for getting his movies adapted on television, yeah. even though it's a mixed bag sometimes. <laughs> I think he had a lot of success in the 90s. The Stand, given its budget limitation stuff, is a pretty good adaptation. Yeah, uh, It has some downfalls, but everyone remembers the Tim Curry performance. You know, um, there's a lot of good stuff that maybe came out of that. Uh, I, I have a, I don't know, it wasn't really adapting a particular King story, but I like the Golden Years. Yeah, yeah. That was uh, an in- interesting kind of series. But... Carrie, when the time by 2002 comes around and they're adapting it, it's not really clear what they're trying to do. Have you seen this? I, I think I may have seen it once, but I really don't remember anything about it. So very similar to The the Rage in the sense that Carrie, to, Carrie 2002 doesn't quite seem to understand what was what was good about the book and the movie. <laughs> I will say this. Unlike Rage the rage that just seems to be a random movie about someone with telekinesis with some lazy attempts to tie it into Carrie. Carrie two does seem, or Carrie 2002 does seem to at least have a director and a writer. Actually, the writer's Brian Fuller, who is usually pretty good. Uh, who's yeah. So he goes back and he tries to craft this thing from the perspective of, well, how can we make this closer to the book? Uh, there's one thing in this that surprised me because I didn't know it watching it, 
rewatching it, I'd seen bits. I think I'd only seen pieces of it originally because I definitely would have remembered the ending here. <laughs> and he tries to adapt some things. He does some other things. But it's clear that what they were going for with this made them make some changes that they never should have considered. Yeah. But it's clear that they've seen the the old movie and that they've read the book and they try to mesh both of those things together. For most of its runtime, Carrie 2002 is a lot more true to the book, whether that's a good thing or not, than the 76 version. But what's equally strange is the movie just really wants to ape everything that the the 76 version did visually. It tries nothing new visually. Uh, When it gets to the prom scene, it tries to do everything over again. The problem is that the director here, who sort of just seems to be a kind of gun for hire, doesn't doesn't have much directing chops. Uh, He he wants to do a scene like De Palma's, but he has no clue about why De Palma does what he does or how De Palma uses style. And so it's watch and it's the budget is very minor and very low. And so you've got a, a very cheap looking movie. You've got cheap looking film stock. You have cheap looking uh sets and everything just feels very second rate and very haphazard in the way it's arranged. That and and they even have these sort of interviews and interrogations with Sue Snell that's happening at the sort of wrapper of the movie, they harken back to all those little pieces that King used to tell you what was going on. Hmm. We even see meteorites in this movie. <laughs> like, Carrie seems to attract meteorites. This isn't the only version that does that. I think that no. this is their way of trying to interpret that bit at the very beginning of the book <laughs> yeah. where stones fall from the sky. Yeah. But in this one, you literally see meteorites streaming down through the sky towards Carrie's house. And I'm like, please don't tell me this is how she gets her powers. Please let this not be the case. Thankfully, that's not the case. The meteorites, I think, are just stand in. The meteor shower is a stand in for the stones. It's just not very effective. It looks very bad. Uh, Angela Bettis is pretty good as Carrie, but she gives a similar performance in a movie called May by Lucky McKee. I'm not a huge fan of that movie either. Uh, I think Bettis has talent she's kind of twitchy and strange patricia clarkson does a decent job but honestly it feels like you're watching a community theater version of the de palma movie i don't know how else to say Uh, emily de raven from uh, lost who played uh claire i believe on lost is the chris character here okay and so they tried to re-establish pieces of the book that i don't think were really that necessary in the beginning like chris uh, how Chris processes these things, Chris's father trying to get her out of trouble. You know, those weren't pieces I was really clamoring to see on screen. Uh, yeah. Again, Bettis is fine. It's trying to be more faithful until you get to the end, which is to me where the whole thing <laughs> falls apart. I couldn't even believe this. And I, it sounds maybe kind of cynical, but Carrie lives in the 2002 version, which. I guess there's a way you can earn that. I think we all want to see her survive. We don't want to see her die. We don't really want to see her become a murderer. But it feels so cheap in the way in which it's done. And I had a suspicion about that because a couple things that happen toward the end is when Carrie gets hit by the pig's blood, there's no inclination in the book or the 76 movie that she... We talk about how her powers start controlling her. She starts to seem to be controlled... But in the movies, it's almost like she literally goes into a fugue state. It's almost like she's not even in control of her body right, at all. Right. And she's just 
raging out. The problem with that is it kind of makes her, it takes away her complicitness in it. It's almost like she's not killing these kids. She just is freaked out, can't control it, and she's just like a grenade that's gone off. And that, and then suddenly she comes back to herself by the time she gets home and she's in the bathtub. But at that point, it's like she's just now coming back. So it's almost like they want to take some of Carrie's own responsibility for the damage she does. Yeah. And just take it away from her because, oh, she's going crazy. It's like when Bruce Banner becomes the Hulk. How responsible is he for what the Hulk does? <laughs> And all of these things are leading me up to have this really weird feeling that they're trying to transform Carrie into a kind of a superhero. And the Hulk thing, when I, I thought that watching it, and then when I see the full ending, it kind of becomes eerie how much it is like the Incredible Hulk TV show. <laughs> because she gets saved. Sue Snell runs in and manages to save her. And then not just save her, but hide her from the authorities looking for her. And then kind of packs her up and sends her off to Florida to help psychic kids with telekinesis like herself like to control their powers and be in charge of them. And this is Carrie's atonement is to go forward with her life and go to Florida and Bill Bixby Bill Bixby her way across Florida <laughs> helping these post-psychic kids I guess. Um, that's like a bad superhero origin story yeah. and when I read up on it, sure enough their hope was to make a TV show <laughs> Where Carrie would go from situation to situation, helping people. <laughs> most most of it was just her like getting cats out of trees. Yeah, right. By just breaking the tree <laughs> down and like burning the tree down until the cat falls out. Of it. <laughs> that just sounds like the dumbest idea. <laughs> like, why would you make a TV show out of Carrie? That just makes no sense to me whatsoever. I think it was an attempt, like I say, around that time you had. I think you had mentioned. The Dead Zone. They did a TV show, The Dead Zone, which wasn't terrible. Um, but there's no reason. I think the only thing we can maybe tie us to, 2002 is the year that Spider-Man comes out. It's the point when people are starting to think that superhero movies have a future yeah. again. I honestly think they were trying to configure Carrie into a superhero. Uh, she's like an X-Man in this movie, pretty much. <laughs> it could be an X-Men origin story. I'm not I'm not even making no, that up. It's so true. it's clear they don't understand it. They move away from a lot of what was good about it but at the same time they still want that eat have your cake and eat it too because when she gets covered in the pig's blood they try to position bettis just like they did with spacek and it's just clear that well they just don't have the talent to pull it off (laughs) by all rights that should have been the last attempt anyone had at making a carry movie but there is one more and that was in 2013 higher profile movie uh interesting director the director boys don't cry do you want to talk about this one a little bit sure yeah this this was one you know like obviously at this point there's so much carry and like king had even said what there's is there even a point to remaking this after we've done brian de palma there's a musical out there that's true i don't think it's a film but it's yeah yeah um but this one I, i did actually have some interest in it because of the director again being you know somebody who did boys don't cry and i thought you know great we're gonna have a female perspective coming in to direct this you know maybe she's gonna bring some more pathos to this um film itself and you know i like juliana moore i think she's a great actress i thought she could be really good as margaret white um chloe grace moretz i was definitely a little bit on the fence about because i'm just like she's not a strange looking kid or anything like that you know she looks like she would no, be a she's a very kid. she's clearly becoming a very pretty girl yeah. at the time that this movie was made she had just been in let me in so i kind of see why maybe the horror community would have been interested in her. yeah 
but but still it was just it was like that didn't just i don't know that didn't like seem right but still i was like okay i'm willing to go with this it's it's a bigger budget you know it looks like it's gonna have a big release you know i see that they're updating it so i'm like okay that's not i I don't have a problem with not setting it in the 70s like there's definitely especially now with like social media being more of a, a form that kids can get bullied on i can understand how they could maybe tie some of that stuff in there and then i see the movie and i'm not gonna say that it's not a i don't think it's a terrible movie i just think it's one it's completely unnecessary two i just don't think it works i especially when you get to you know the pivotal prom scene like i just think it's handled so badly this they, they they rely on using a lot of cgi during that scene and it looks completely false there's no real I, I never felt any kind of tension during that movie at all. I think Juliana Moore is okay in it. Um, I don't think the, the Chloe is horrible as Carrie, but I just don't think there's anything really special about it. There's nothing that she brings to that role that hasn't been done already or and done better by Sissy Spacek. But I don't know. I just felt it, it just it was felt so flat to me. I was like, there's no reason that I should ever need to go back and rewatch this version when I already have a great version of this once. No, I think that that's right on, and it's also, it's kind of clear to me that they don't want to do anything else with it, because it doesn't, it doesn't try to be that different, again, from the De Palma movie. No. It seems to be using the De Palma movie as a template, to the point that I think what's weird about it a little bit is that you know, when you look at the script, the, I don't, it might be not a well-known fact, but Larry Cohen, who in his own right is a good writer and director, uh, did the script for the original Carrie, the one from 1926. Oh, okay. And strangely, he's got a writing credit on the 2013 <laughs> Carrie, but I'm pretty sure Larry Cohen didn't come back and write the 2013 Carrie. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Um, now, he's... He uh, and in and, and actually, as I'm looking here, I am I've made one of those mistakes where I'm think I'm saying Larry Cohen, <laughs> and this is Lawrence Cohen. He is listed as Larry <laughs> Cohen on these movies. He did write Carrie 1976. He also wrote It in 1990 and the Tommyknockers. He's not the Larry Cohen you know I was thinking of who did the stuff and Cute yeah. Little Serpent. And all those great movies. So Nick's most of what I said. This is making but, a lot more sense um, now. <laughs> because <laughs> if you've ever if you've, if you've ever seen the tommy knockers uh miniseries which we will talk about at some point um yeah <laughs> that's all i'll say for now they were they weren't working from the best source before. no no that's true but uh carrie in 2013 though i mean what he did write carrie in 1976 yeah um, and he also uh really had i don't know how much he had to do with the new carry and if he did write it it's definitely a come down but it it tries to do most of the same thing yeah i think what's interesting about it is it's competently made it's pretty even-handed it takes those elements and makes what you could i hate to say the word sensible but that's what it does it tries to make a sensible movie out of them (laughs) Uh, and that might be the problem it's trying to take the Margaret White character and make a sensible sort of movie villain out of her. Uh, Julianne Moore, I like her a lot. I kind of like the way she approaches it, 
but it just doesn't feel unhinged enough. No. There's no rawness to this carry, really. Chloe Moretz plays her as a very... She fails to internalize her weirdness and oddness almost at all. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like they looked at that book and were just completely put off by the way King described her and decided to make her a kind of mousy girl. <laughs> uh, she is made... She, a girl like her would be bullied today. It's a sad thing to say. I mean, it's, it's sad that anyone's bullied, but I mean... We do live in a world, each version, of, there there is a value. I think there's a potential value to having a carry for, for uh, each sort of generation, but they've just botched it yeah. in all the follow-up versions. And this version, too. Uh, for instance, they when the scene happens in the shower, someone's videotaping it, to, I mean, someone is recording it to put it on YouTube. That totally makes sense. Even as a 2002, right. putting it on YouTube wouldn't have been something somebody was really familiar yeah. with. And so in 2013, that makes sense. The problem is Carrie herself is not the kind of person who has access to YouTube <laughs> or cares about any of that right. sort of thing. I'm sure she's she's horrified that it's happened, but it kind of – that's not the effective link there because we don't have Carrie following on Facebook and or something like that and seeing this, this image. So – they could have done more with that. I don't mind that they're trying to update the way bullying exists in 2013 versus the way it existed in 1976, but that's about all that they do. It's sort of face value stuff. Yeah. I have a larger problem with it uh, in the sense that she doesn't ever, like I said, internalize Carrie and show that her developing her psychic powers has a lot to do with finding something that is her own, something that can distinguish her from being the screw-up, from being the person that has nothing, it isn't really about revenge for Carrie yeah. at that moment. She does think about harming some of the people who did stuff to her, but it's never intended that she's going to go off and kill everybody at the prom. She doesn't see that coming in her future. Yeah. But in the Carrie in 2013, it almost feels like she develops it as a weapon towards her mother and as a way to kind of like to level the playing field. But I just don't think that was the intention of what King was going at. I think you lose something if you lose that idea that it's the one thing that she truly has that's hers and that no one can take from her or or corrupt or humiliate her with. Yeah. It's the only it's her ticket away, really. Yeah. Uh so that's my problem. The biggest problem I have is at the end it becomes this big special effects sequence. <laughs> now to be fair, it's probably closer to King's book where she just destroys a good chunk of the town. Yeah. And destroys Chris and 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 um, is it Billy? Uh, yeah, Billy, uh, her boyfriend. Yeah, who who was um, actually Travolta <laughs> yeah. in the earlier version? Uh, which, which I mean, to be fair, he he kind of did what he was supposed to do yeah. there. The but here, I just don't. I don't really buy it. It just feels like Mean Girls with telekinesis. Yeah, uh, exactly. But when she starts, I have a real problem. The part that goes from me just being kind of like, oh, oh well. To being that actively, I just don't think it's a very good adaptation, is that she, Carrie seems to be enjoying her destruction a little too yeah. much. Like she, we, we're almost supposed to viscerally sort of enjoy with her as she's killing these people. She has this look on her face. She's very much in control of, her, of herself. But even in the, in the other versions, Carrie seems to be, she hits this as a defense sort of mechanism and, and she can't turn it off. She doesn't right. necessarily want to turn it off, but here she's sort of reveling in murdering these people. And I don't think that that, that kind of moves her from actively being a victim and a kind of tragic 
uh, monster to kind of just being a, a villain, yeah. you know? Like, she kind of becomes... She she almost seems like she's possessed in the last scene of the 2013 Carrie, but she's using this as a way... To, it, it seems like some of those movies where you are supposed to enjoy watching this person use evil means to get vengeance because right. the bad guys deserve it. <laughs> I just didn't think that spoke... That takes away a lot of that compassion that King built into the character. Yeah, definitely. So, to me, the one thing that movie highlights is it gain, It should give us a greater respect for what King did with the story and what De Palma did with the story because I think it points out that, you know what, it, it's not, it wasn't just, oh, they had a good story or they had this interesting story, that's why it was successful. It's all about what you do with it. I mean, this Carrie movie here had all the elements and had had previous movies to even draw on, and it still it it does everything middle of the road, but it doesn't use any creativity to make it something special, right. which I think both of these guys did. Yeah, and hopefully we learn from that. And we'll never have to see another Carrie movie happen again. Well, maybe maybe we'll finally get the TV series. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Carrie goes west. Carrie's good. Or or maybe Carrie can fight somebody else with like telekinesis. Like I don't know. Carrie, Carrie versus fire. Danny Torrance. Yeah. Carrie versus versus Firestarter. Yeah. They all have to get No, we'll make a team. Oh my god. Like, it's like the Justice the, League. The Kingsmen. <laughs> it's 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 Johnny Smith from the Dead Zone. It's Carrie White. Yes. It's uh, the girl from Firestarter. Johnny Smith is like their uh their mentor. Yeah. Uh, we He's can, the, we can even the Xavier him. figure. Yes, exactly right. He could be bald. I say again. We'll just call it the Kingsman. Yeah. It'll be, it'll <laughs> the be Kingsman. That's awesome. <laughs> well, Seth, thank you for joining me. I'm looking forward to uh, moving forward on this series and doing more episodes. This was a lot of fun. It was a lot yeah. of fun just to go back and read the book, honestly. Like, yeah. Uh, to really kind of immerse myself in that. So uh, maybe the only thing is this is by far the shortest one. So I'm thinking, <laughs> oh, this isn't so bad. I'm forgetting. Like, uh, well, take care, Seth. Have a good night. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Ethan.